Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted with the head of Chicago's film efforts, heard great new music, and learned about environmental stewardship from Greenpeace. All this plus size matters and a new keeper's box only on the Lumpin' Week in Review from May 10th, 2019. John Daly chatted with Rich Moskal, the retired head of Chicago's film office. Moskal discussed the impact of the Blues Brothers and Dark Knight had on our city, what is making Chicago attractive to producers, and what the city needs to do to keep attracting talent. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. And we're joined with Rich Moskal, who for a long time ran Chicago's film department and uh, something that has been um, constantly growing and and, uh, most recently in the news. But, uh, Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for coming down. What take, take us through a little bit, first of all, what does the Chicago Film Department, Film Bureau, actually do? Sure. It's actually, um, I guess the technical title is the Chicago Film Office. It was established uh, back in 1980. And, in fact, it was, uh, it was brought about shortly after the movie The Blues Brothers shot in Chicago. And up until that time, the city really didn't have an office designed to deal with film production, let alone a production the size of uh, the Blues Brothers. So it, it was after all the mayhem that that production created. It wasn't that the, the largest street. car crash in uh, history of film? Yeah, <laughs> it could have been in terms <laughs> of the numbers of like, police squad car, if you, if you were to sort of gauge it along those lines. It was, it was, uh, it was a real turning point in Chicago's uh, history um, as, uh, as a place for film production to happen. And uh, literally, it's Mayor Byrne at the time, while there wasn't a ceremony about it, gave the keys to the city uh, to Belushi and Aykroyd to, and to John Landis, who directed that movie, and let them do pretty much whatever the hell they wanted to do, <laughs> and, um, which was a fun thing. You know, it was actually uh, – it, it, not only was it a fun production and it was notorious for its chases and its stunts and its, and its sort of outrageous – request to do things but it really it really showcased Chicago's culture beyond the beyond what it looked like on film which was really interesting because very few films up until that point had been shot in Chicago so it was a real fresh look of a metropolis that a lot of people hadn't seen to include you know Chicago's architecture and its skyline and its and its L and Lower Wicker Drive but it also showcased Chicago's music and its comedy scene and and really and really put a spotlight on Chicago uh, as a rel- relatively undiscovered place, at least as far as Hollywood was concerned. So while the film had great, um, uh, great uh, box office appeal and, and consumer appeal, it really had an impact on other producers and other directors and other studios who saw that movie and said, wow, man, they'll let you do pretty much anything in Chicago. And sure enough, <laughs> there was a, a, an influx of other producers. And to accommodate that, that growing demand for people wanting to make movies and TV shows and even commercials in Chicago, um, uh, the city set up the Chicago Film Office as a one-stop liaison uh, to serve as a, like the connective t- tissue between producers and what they want to do and the city and how it needs to respond in, in, in kind. Were those films like uh, Code of Silence and a lot of the, the other Chicago films after that? Though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I was uh, um, before working. I was a location manager uh, before uh, working for the film office, and I was um, I was a location manager on Code of Silence, uh, which was made by a, a Chicagoan, Andy Davis. It was a Chuck Norris film, uh, also known for doing some pretty outrageous stunts in terms of Chuck having a. a Fist fight on top of a moving L train that that spilled into the Chicago River, but you know there was uh, any number of different directors who were really loyal to Chicago. Chicagoans who had made it to the point of being um, having the clout, uh, having the ability to tell a studio, "Hey, I want to make this in Chicago." People like John Hughes, Andy Davis, Michael Mann, who made um, some of perhaps I think the best uses of, of Chicago locations with movies like Thief, uh, Ali. Um, the the crime story series. So throughout the 80s, since the office was created throughout the 80s, there was just a a huge uh, growth in the numbers of film productions, specifically film, less so television series, although there was a short-lived television series called Chicago Story that Dennis Franz was uh, was one of the stars of. Um, But yeah, man, it took off. The the industry really took off in the 80s. And uh, the state film office, which was uh, the Illinois film office, which was created in 75 and 76, um, 
had a lot to do with that in that they were for the first time selling Illinois and specifically Chicago to producers by proactively going out to Los Angeles and say, hey, you may not have thought of film, filming in Chicago before, but we have a lot to offer. We've got a crew base. We've got a great look, and we're here to make things simple for you. And producers took to that. In that in that uh, era, what was the biggest uh, production that, that I mean, I, I think of, but it might be a little later, Backdraft. but uh, You know, Backdraft was huge without question in terms of – uh, and there was a Ron Howard picture with big stars and big budget, and of course there was all these fire effects. But there was also the Untouchables, which Brian De Palma made sure. here in Chicago, which certainly um, probably the the most glamorous depiction of Chicago is a, a headquarters for Capone and other gangsters. It was a, it was just a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, the John Hughes films of Home Alone and and Breakfast Club and uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, just like nonstop John Hughes productions that oftentimes showcase Chicago's North Shore, but uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off literally was one of those like beautiful postcards for Chicago in terms of showing off Wrigley Field and Yard Institute and Sears Tower. You talked about the, some directors that were loyal to Chicago. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked to John Hundreiser and, and a few folks that he's uh, uh, producing a play with, and they had talked about the community in Chicago and in in you know, there's kind of a, a moment in Chicago. They said that the, a lot of playwrights are uh, doing new things, and I, I don't think a lot of that is necessarily new, but I imagine that that plays somewhat into what gets translated into film. It, without question. It, and, in fact, it's part of that moment that you're talking about. It really is. I mean, we've never had this much in the way of production, mostly television series, but also features, uh, locally produced independent features, uh, as well as Hollywood features. But last year there was nine full season television series they were shooting in Chicago and part of what makes all of that production possible is the fact that Chicago is so rich in terms of its talent pool whether it comes from the theater community whether it comes from the advertising community uh, actors in Chicago um, have a work ethic that is um, admired nationally by directors and producers who love to cast out of Chicago and if they're going to bring a television series or a feature to Chicago the ability to cast people from here as opposed to having to bring them in from Los Angeles to New York and put them up in hotels and fly them in and add additional costs uh, not to mention the fact that there's such quality talent here coming out of nationally if not internationally recognized theater companies whether it be Steppenwolf or Licking Glass or Goodman I mean there's um, there's a reputation that Chicago has as a place where talent grows and where talent is nurtured. And it may not always stay in Chicago. True enough, I think that's always been part of Chicago's sort of second city uh, reputation. But the fact that that talent is here and growing and available and available to work on any of these productions that come our way is a, is a huge um, is a huge incentive for producers, but it's also a training ground in terms of small theater companies, storefront theater companies that are moving into film and moving into web series as a way of creating uh, their own projects. And that that type of talent, uh, which is perhaps not on the national radar at this moment, but working its way there, is an indication in terms of what Chicago is all about these days. And it's it's that confluence of big Hollywood production, whether it comes from Los Angeles as a television series or a feature film, meshed with the growth of local storytellers who are working in any number of medium, whether it's uh, for traditional screen purposes or web series. Those types of, those types of things happening simultaneously is a, is a truly unique moment for Chicago right now. I guess it's no surprise that you mentioned you were, you were in the industry before uh, moving to the cities. Um, office. What, how did you first get involved in film, and what, was, what were you inspired by? Uh, you know, I was uh, I was I loved film. Uh, I went to Loyola University here in Chicago. I didn't really think there was much of a film opportunity for me, as much as I was studying film there. Uh, but then, on a cold call, I, and I was helping to pay my tuition uh, by working as a photographer at Sportsman's Park Racetrack, uh, which uh, is no longer around, but it it, uh, it was a fun gig and it. Uh, helped me pay for tuition, but uh, more importantly, it gave me some camera skills. And I got, on a cold call, I was uh, uh, applied for uh, an internship at the Illinois Film Office. And the fact that I had some camera skills uh, gave me the opportunity to scout locations. And uh, man, scouting locations was a great, great time. I mean, to get a script and just uh, just 
go find us um, Al Capone's warehouse or go find the first the first uh, job they sent me out on was to go find uh, a turn of the like an 1890s uh, river town that could serve as the main location for some uh, um, riverboat gambler movie that Keith Richards supposedly was going to star in and <laughs> I, I was just like totally thrilled I, I tried to find something that could approximate it unfortunately the movie never happened but <clears throat> was it Galena did you choose Galena well, I went to Galena yeah. in fact I, dra- I traveled the entire length of the Mississippi River uh, Utica on the, was what I on first the, thought of on the western side but you know anything that could come close and they said they would build it but nonetheless I was out there pretty much on my own anyway that that location scouting experience got me into um, being one of the few people at the time, and this is you know a while ago, this is like the early 80s, there weren't a ton of people who were working as location scouts or location managers. Um, and my first like real job was working as a location assistant on a Dan Aykroyd movie called Dr. Detroit, which shot here in Chicago back in, uh, back in the early 80s. But it was that kind of experience of, and being a, in the locations department, you are not only trying to find the locations where producers and directors are gonna work, but you're also working out all of the details around it, whether it's permitting, whether it's uh, support services, how to how to interact with the community. It was uh, it was a good fit for me in terms of moving into something like the Chicago Film Office. Nancy Clem spoke to Miriam Fallon about Greenpeace. A crew member of the Arctic Sunrise, Fallon discussed the group's campaign to end overfishing, rid the oceans of toxic chemicals, and what Chicagoans can do in their own backyard. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second and fourth Sunday of the month at 5 p.m. Today my guest is Miriam Fallon. Let's start um, with Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. Um, So Greenpeace has been a long has been around as long as I can remember. And I wasn't surprised it was started in the early 70s against um, nuclear weapon testing. Mm -hmm. So it's now an organization that has offices worldwide in many countries. And you've been working with Greenpeace for a number of years now on communications. In fact, the reason you you weren't in the studio a couple weeks ago was that you had to fly to Washington during that snowstorm. <laughs> and we weren't able to record you. Yeah. Um, would you tell me a little bit how cam- campaigns with Greenpeace have changed and um, since you started working for them? Yeah, sure. So uh, to start, I should say that I don't currently work for Greenpeace. Um, I do contracts with them occasionally these days. But so Mm -hmm. today I'll speak for myself and my own experience with them. But I should just note that I'm not speaking on behalf of the organization. Um, But yeah, I think campaigning with Greenpeace has changed quite a bit over the years, um, which, you know, it has to as the world changes. Uh, You have to change the way you change the world. But it started out in 1971 with an effort to stop a nuclear blast test from going off in Alaska. Um, And the founding members actually uh, attempted to stop that test by chartering a sailboat and then trying to sail that sailboat into the test zone to stop the blast from going off. So quite literally putting their lives on the line to stop this from happening. Um, Now, they didn't make it into the test zone. They got uh, stopped by the Coast Guard before they could get there. But the Um, global impact of the story that they told by trying to get themselves there Mm -hmm. was the launch of of Greenpeace. Um, And aspects of that have stayed with Greenpeace over the years. Um, Certainly that direct action campaigning, as it's called, when you actually physically put yourself uh, in between the destruction and the destructors. Um, But also the storytelling aspect of it um, and the way in which Greenpeace tries to go and show the bad things that are happening, maybe stop the bad things that are happening, and then um, project that around the world for people to see and understand and care about. Um, the ways that they've done that obviously have changed over the years with the advent of different technologies, um, with social media, all of that has gotten incorporated with it as it's gone. Um, but certain aspects of it are still there. We still have ships. Right. <laughs> the organization has three ships that still do active campaigning around the world to this day. So where did you go to school for journalism? And yeah. Uh, Yeah, I studied at the University of Iowa. 
Okay. And how did you realize you wanted to combine the skill of storytelling or journalism with your love of the environment? Yeah, it was all a happy accident. Um, (laughs) I think I've never been one of those people that has a clear path in front of me in terms of life or a career or a single passion. Um, And I think that I used to find that distressing. Uh, I think society sometimes tells us that we're supposed to like have a thing that we know that that's our thing and we should go (laughs) do only that thing. Um, And I've never had that. Uh, So instead, over the years, I've learned to uh, sort of follow my interests and curiosity Mm -hmm. um, and see where it takes me. And so it's it's taken me on some wild journeys. (laughs) Um, I started studying journalism in college mostly because I wanted to study photography and then thought, seems like a waste of money to spend a whole college education on just photography. Like I want to make it more marketable. And so for photojournalism sounded appealing. So I started started studying journalism. Um, and I've always been a sort of uh, storytelling person, I guess. So it appealed to me as I started studying it. Um, but I studied it long enough to realize that, well, I found it quite interesting. And I think the act of journalism is incredibly important to our society. I had no desire to work in mainstream media. So um, when I graduated, I sort of floundered around for a year and a half or so and then um, accidentally stumbled into Greenpeace uh, as a volunteer here in Chicago, um, volunteering with a few different organizations around a number of issues, but a big one being the Fisk and Crawford coal plants that used to be in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, found uh, found out that you could make a career in change making, which I just like had no idea about <laughs> before I started volunteering. Um, I didn't realize that you could turn a passion for creating a better world into a career. That was mind blowing to me when I found that out. Well, a career that might not pay very well, but nevertheless, <laughs> a career <laughs> doesn't always pay the best, uh, but is fulfilling in ways that I, I prefer over lots of money. Um, so yeah, I started working for Greenpeace and it just kind of stuck for 10 years, um, which again, I was not expecting. The first job I took for Greenpeace was a two month contract that just never ended. You know, it <laughs> changed into different jobs um, over the years. But uh, yeah, and and so it combined into sort of a like a happy package when I started doing the communication side of the campaigning work um, and was actually able to put that understanding of journalism through my journalism degree to use. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, when an organization such as Greenpeace is so well recognized, it seems that opinions would be fixed as to its identity. So how do you open stories to get people both within the organization and on the street considering their views more deeply and making fresh decisions about an issue? Yeah. Um, For me, as someone who's worked in communications for so long, the first thing I do whenever I'm um, trying to purposefully tell a story either to a single person or to a group or just out into the ether of the internet Mm -hmm. um, is I try to ask myself who I'm talking to because I think uh, in order for people to to really listen to you it helps if you're meeting them where they're at. But how do you know what that that is? Well sometimes it's (laughs) guesses (laughs) and assumptions. Um, Sometimes in sort of like the mass communication of campaigning it's really thinking about who the campaign needs to speak to strategically to create change and then Mm -hmm. figuring out the mediums with which to speak to them through, whether Mm. that's the New York Times or, you know, a local newspaper in small town Pennsylvania or Mm -hmm. social media. Um, If it's just somebody I've met at a party (laughs) or, you know, a friend of a friend, I try to actually start by asking a question or two of them to get a sense of where they're at what their beliefs are, what their understandings of whatever issue we're talking about are. Such as? Oh, I mean, it varies so drastically depending <laughs> on, on the situation or what we're talking about. Um, you know, if it's a political issue, I try to ask uh, polite but probing questions to get a sense <laughs> of their politics before uh-huh. I dive in. Um, you know, it might just be questions about their background to get a sense of how they grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it it depends drastically, and I think when it comes to sort of successful, purposeful communications, the key is flexibility. Like you just have to be able to speak in a variety of ways to a variety of people um, in order to get them to hear you. Because uh, it's sort of a, a jarring thing to realize when when you go into campaign communications or professional communications that facts are nice, 
But facts don't matter in convincing people. <laughs> like, it right. just, if they did, we would not be in so many of the messes we're in right. currently, um, especially when it comes to environmental issues. Like, the science behind most of the environmental issues you heard talked about today is solid and there. Um, so facts are great, and you need them to back up your story and your mm -hmm. messages. Um, but leading with them does nothing <laughs> in right. terms of convincing the vast majority of people. Um, so it's about trying to figure out how people are going to hear you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's I think that's really difficult because you also want to. Um, it's hard to summarize somebody up in in uh, a little bit of time, and when you're trying to work quickly, um, it's really hard to under it's really hard to understand that that works better in relationship or mm -hmm. when you're more immersed in a, mm -hmm. in a context, you can kind of build towards that. Mm -hmm. But doing it straight out is really, really hard. Yeah. And it's getting harder, I think, in this day and age when it comes to technology, because um, the way we communicate with each other as a society is just speeding up. It's more messages in shorter amounts of time and shorter bites. Um, so it's, it's becoming much, much harder to speak in that way that's going to be flexible because you have so little of people's attention in this day and age, in this media market, in this 24-hour news cycle. There's so much more being said. They can just actually, switch off and yeah. turn direction. Right. Yeah. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for coming by. I um I needed to talk to you about my new job and the radio show. New job? Wait, wait a second here. New job? What you gonna be doing? Well, it's pretty cool. I'm gonna be reviewing some maps and plans for some guys that I know. It's like um like building blueprints, mostly like banks. You gonna have those pens with got the chain on it? I sell those under Viaduct. I'll let you know, but. The thing is, I'm going to be working a lot of afternoons and nights, yeah. so I'm not going to be able to record but, as many shows. But you're my biographer. How are we going to tell the story of my life? I'm sorry, Kyle. I, I'm just not going to be able to hop a train with you in the middle of the night anymore. I, I have responsibilities. But what about the curse, Jess? You're too young. The what? The curse of size matters. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, jeez. Kyle, you're making this up. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, Jess, you're not the first producer that this show has ever had. I know that. I took over from John. John wasn't my first producer either. Size Matters has had seven producers before you. Seven? Sometimes I lay awake at night and I see little Robbie's face just before... Oh, Jess, it's too painful, Dagger. Uh, the curse is real. I'm begging you, don't do this. I don't know, this sounds suspiciously like some of your old-timey oh, hokum. Oh, jeez. John seemed fine when we saw him, like, two weeks ago. Oh poor, oh, poor sweet John. Always had my back. Always ready to shave my back. We need to check on him, Jess. Well, if it would put your mind at ease, he lives right around the corner. We can just go see him. Come on. Whoa, this is John's place. Yikes, it looks condemned. I thought he had one of them swanky bachelor pads at that rotating hot tub and fondue thing. He did. Are you sure this is the right address? Yeah, this is South Aberdeen. Funny, this is the only house left here now. A lot of vacant lots. Yeah, and roving packs of wild dogs. And tire fires. Johnny, it's Kyle, your pal Kyle. Johnny! Uh, I guess he's, uh... Oh, door's open. Should we just go in? Oh, what is that ah. smell? Smells like a dump took a dump on another dump. Oh. What's Johnny been eating? <laughs> Look at all this garbage. Are you sure this house isn't abandoned? Oh, Kyle, over here. I think... Oh, John, are you all right? I don't know who the flock you are, but get the flock out. I think he's drunk on giggly juice. Is that Kyle? <laughs> you son of a bitch. John, come down. Give me that hand. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. John, settle down. We just came by to see you. What the hell happened here? Ouch. What happened? What happened? Calm down, I lost everything. And it's all Kyle's fault here. How? 
You still got that flashback noise? Oh, yeah. Ah, boy. I had just handed off size matters to Jess. For the first time in years, I felt a huge weight off of my shoulders. No more creepy requests to supervise bathing. No more late-night calls from Eddie asking me to get Kyle out of the basement. I had a new job. I had a new life. Everything was coming up Petrowski. But then, disaster struck. As I was coming home one night, a giant sewer main exploded, destroying most of the houses on my block and leveling my yard. Overnight, I went from being a friendly neighbor to being an outcast, and all because Kyle rerouted Undertown's waste pipes in a scheme to collect burp gas. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I was involved in that. That stench permeated everything. That smell, it's in me. I went from being able to show my face at an office to being a rag boy at the Admiral. Are you drinking gasoline? Yeah, it messes your stomach up a bit, but it gives you a good buzz. Oh, John, this is awful. Being a rag boy is worse Mm. than leprosy. (laughs) You're telling me I lost everything thanks to you. Kyle, we gotta do something. Just like that, I'm out of gas. It's the curse, I tell you, as it claims everyone. Don't even worry about me. Look at me. All we have to do is get you cleaned up and back to work. <laughs> you don't understand. That smell, man, it's everywhere. That smell's never going there. I, I, I am the smell, man. I am stink. Hold on, I got <laughs> an idea here. I'm almost certain we're not supposed to put people through a car wash. Yeah, it's a good thing Johnny's drunk, or this might probably definitely hurt him. Well, you smell better. Yeah, he does. Freshly simonized. Now, Johnny, here, I got some clothes for you. Try these on. This is a pirate flouncy shirt, and and this is a this is a bra. Did you, Kyle, did you steal this from the co-pro? Nah, it's a trek, as they moved out, but I broke into the house, and I took a bunch of stuff. And I got you an interview. It's with some old work buddies of mine. It's in radio? Well, yeah, it's in communications. You'll be using a radio. Sure. Uh, it's kind of like a like a surveillance thing. They'll they'll explain it when you get there. Gee, Jess, I can't thank you enough and and Kyle, I'm sorry I misjudged uh, you. It happens to the best of us, Johnny. You know, I, I really do feel like I can get a fresh start. Yes, I'm gonna get on yeah. this bus. Oh, oh hey, and John. I'm going uh, to bus go stops up at the corner. And Just get this. Be job. careful. <laughs> this is the Speak. first uh, time. Hey, Johnny, you gotta get out of the traffic I'm there, so buddy. Well, yeah, really. Stuff. You guys are the best friends a guy can. Oh! Yikes! Well, on the bright side, he's moving a little. Curse, huh? Indeed, the curse. Well, I'll see you next week, Kyle. That's my girl. <laughs> this week on the Trump Diaries. Did Barr lie to Congress? Pelosi thinks so. As calls for impeachment grow, Mueller is summoned to testify, leading Trump to declare the entire report secret. Biden's endorsement give Trump's fits. Stephen Moore bows out, and Trump blames the Kentucky Derby result on political correctness. No, we're not making that one up. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 133, May 2nd. Robert Mueller sent written objections, not once but twice, to Attorney General William Barr. Mueller claimed that Barr's four-page summary to Congress, quote, did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this work and conclusions. Barr claimed that the investigation, quote, did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government, and that Mueller, quote, did not draw a conclusion as to whether the examined conduct constituted obstruction. In fact, Mueller laid out a procedural roadmap for Trump's impeachment. House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi said Barr, quote, did not tell the truth to Congress of the United States, and that's a crime. Pelosi said Barr should be held in contempt, adding that, quote, he lied to Congress. Nobody's above the law, not the President of the United States and not the Attorney General. Trump formally filed a request to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act, claiming the legislation is unconstitutional. 21 million Americans would lose care if that position is upheld. Trump tried to remove references to climate change from an international statement on Arctic policy. The administration objected, quote, to any mention of climate change whatsoever. Trump withdrew Stephen Moore's nomination for a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. The news came hours after Moore said he was, quote, all in for the job. 
Moore's comments on women and his shaky grasp of economics doomed his nomination, even among Republicans. And hours after the firefighters union endorsed Democrat Joe Biden, Trump went on a tweet storm, claiming that firefighters don't support Biden. Trump then called the International Association of Firefighters a, quote, do-sucking union. Day 134, May 3rd. Trump said he discussed the, quote, Russian hoax with Vladimir Putin, and both agreed there was no collusion between Moscow and Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Trump said that he did not discuss election meddling with Putin, nor did he warn him not to meddle in the next U.S. election. The Mueller report detailed a huge state influence campaign by Russia during the 2016 elections. Trump's own intelligence agencies warn a repeat is certain in 2020. Trump rolled back safety rules for offshore drilling put in place after the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It reduces the required frequency of key safety tests, such as blowout preventings, and the rule change sensibly came to liberate offshore production. Oil production in the Gulf has already reached a record 1.9 million barrels per day. In a surprise, the U.S. added 263,000 new jobs in April. The unemployment rate fell to 3.6% from 3.8%. That is the lowest since December 1969. Date 135, May 4th. Facebook and Twitter banned a number of reactionary commentators who have been blamed for inciting violence and fermenting hate speech. Infowars chief Alex Jones, the Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, provocateur Mayo Yiannopoulos, and activist Laura Loomer were among those banned. Trump claimed he was, quote, looking into it after tweeting, quote, the wonderful diamond and silk have been treated so horribly by Facebook. They work so hard and what has been done to them is very sad and we're looking into it. Trump then said, quote, when will the radical left-wing media apologize to me for knowingly getting the Russia collusion delusion story so wrong? The real story is about to happen. Why is NY Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC allowed to be on Twitter and Facebook? Much of what they do is fake news. Trump threatened to increase tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods from 10% to 25%. Trump has accused China of reneging on its agreed statements to trade commitments and the tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese goods starting Friday. And Trump found time to comment on the controversial end of the Kentucky Derby. Quote, the Kentucky Derby decision, he misspelled Kentucky, was not a good one. It was a rough and tumble race in a wet and sloppy track, actually a beautiful thing to watch. Only in these days of political correctness could such an overturn occur. The best horse did not win the Kentucky Derby, not even close. Day 36, May 5th. 370 former federal prosecutors signed a letter saying that Trump would have been charged with obstruction of justice if he was not president. Quote, each of us believes that the conduct of Trump described in the special counsel Robert Mueller's report would in the case of any other person not covered by the Office of Legal Counsel policy against indicting a sitting president result in multiple felony charges for obstruction of justice. That letter was signed by career Republican and Democratic appointees. Trump then tweeted, quote, Bob Mueller should not testify. No redos for Dems. Trump had previously said he would leave Mueller's testimony to Congress to our attorney general. William Barr had said he had no objection to Mueller testifying. Trump's reversal came after the House Judiciary Committee formally invited Mueller to testify on May 15th. It was also revealed that Mueller, for reasons unknown, remains on the Justice Department payroll. Nancy Pelosi is warning her caucus that Trump might not voluntarily give up power in 2020. Pelosi is quoted as saying, quote, if we win by four seats by a thousand votes each, he's not going to respect the election. Trump would poison the public mind. Trump and many far-right hacks have claimed falsely that millions of illegal immigrants vote. And Trump deployed an aircraft carrier strike group and a bomber task force to the Middle East as a show of force against Iran. John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claimed without offering proof, there are clear indications that Iran is planning an attack on U.S. forces. Pompeo added the move was, quote, something we've been working on for a little while. Day 137, May 6th. A sweeping new United Nations report says humans are transforming Earth so dramatically that as many as one million plant and animal species are now at risk of extinction. This poses a dire threat to the ecosystems that humans depend on for their own survival. The report is the most exhaustive look yet at the decline in biodiversity across the globe. It forecasts huge hardships for the human population by 2050. Trump has called global warming a Chinese hoax and recently ordered his own people to stop mentioning climate change in regards to Arctic warming. Trump claimed that two years of his presidential term had been Stalin, misspelling the word stolen, as a result of Mueller's investigation that his term should be extended by two years. Jerry Falwell Jr. wrote, quote, I now support reparations. Trump should have two years added to his first term as payback for time stolen by this corrupt failed coup. Trump tweeted that Democrats have stolen two years of my presidency, our presidency, collusion and delusion that we will never able to be get back. Trump is not known for his grammar or spelling. 
The Treasury Department defined a legal request from Congress to reveal Trump's tax returns, teeing up a legal battle that is likely to head to the Supreme Court. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, who has been one of Trump's most reliable defenders, claimed the request, quote, lacks a legitimate legislative purpose, and he was therefore not authorized to disclose them. In fact, Congress has the explicit right to request the returns under a 1924 law. Such stonewalling is unprecedented since the Nixon era and is likely to result in impeachment proceedings. Attorney General Barr has been given until this morning to hand over the special counsel's full report and its underlying evidence. Congress is prepared to hold Barr, who has been accused of lying to lawmakers, in contempt. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also privately floated the impeachment of Trump this week into her caucus, which would plunge the Capitol into a constitutional crisis. In related news, Robert Mueller has agreed tentatively to testify on May 15th. Trump named the former head of the Border Patrol as the new director of ICE. Mark Morgan, a former FBI agent, served as the head of Border Patrol during the final months of the Obama administration. Morgan supports Trump's call for a border wall. He will require Senate confirmation. And Michael Cohen reported to prison to begin simmering his three-year sentence for tax evasion, lying to Congress, and campaign finance crimes. Day 138, May 7th. In a breathtakingly cynical speech, even for him, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell declared the investigations into Trump and his 2016 campaign, quote, case closed. McConnell then accused Democrats of continuing to re-litigate the presidential election, calling it a Groundhog Day spectacle. He also tried to blame Barack Obama for failing to warn Americans about Russians' election interference ahead of the 2016 election, mocking Democrats, quote, for abruptly awakening to the dangers of Russian aggression. In fact, it was Mitch McConnell himself who torpedoed a bipartisan warning to states from Obama, claiming at the time he was, quote, skeptical the underlying intelligence truly supported the White House's claims. That intelligence, of course, has been proven correct. Trump invoked executive privilege and ordered former counsel Don McGahn not to comply with a congressional subpoena for documents related to Robert Mueller's investigation. White House counsel Pat Cipollone argued that McGahn does not have the legal right to disclose those documents to third parties because they implicate significant executive branch confidentiality interests and executive privilege. That is likely to be tested in the courts. FBI Director Christopher Wright undercut William Barr's testimony and said he had, quote, no evidence that any illegal surveillance took place on the Trump campaign. He added he would also not call the 2016 investigation at Trump campaign's advisors spying. Barr claimed at a Senate hearing in April that, quote, spying did occur, yes, and he called it a big deal. The FBI was, in fact, investigating Trump's campaign for their ties to Russia, which alarmed them. Trump's inaugural committee official disputed a White House account that claimed she profited from her role in helping organize inaugural events. Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, a former advisor to Melania Trump, claimed she was thrown under the bus by the White House and provided receipts to the New York Times detailing her transactions. It was also revealed that Wolkoff has been cooperating with federal prosecutors in Manhattan who are investigating Trump's inaugural committee for money laundering. Day 139, May 8th. The New York Times is reporting that Trump's businesses lost more than $1 billion from 1985 to 1994. The Times acquired printouts from Trump's official IRS tax transcripts. Trump campaigned for the presidency on being a master dealmaker, but according to the figures, Trump appears to have lost more money than any other individual American taxpayer at that time and did not pay taxes for eight years. The report is a damning one. It torpedoes Trump's image as a self-made billionaire. Trump is currently fighting to keep his tax returns from Congress. Trump claimed first that the New York Times report was false, but then appeared to give it credence, tweeting, quote, real estate developers in the 80s and 90s, more than 30 years ago, were entitled to massive write-offs and depreciation, which would, if one was actively building, show losses and tax losses in almost all cases. You always wanted to show losses for tax purposes. Almost all real estate developers did and often renegotiate with banks. It was sport. Additionally, the very old information put out is highly inaccurate and a fake news hit job. The New York Times responded that depreciation would not explain the very real monetary losses, again totaling $1.17 billion, and that other financial irregularities were in these transcripts provided to them. Trump asserted executive privilege to shield hidden portions of the Mueller report and the evidence he collected from Congress. This was Trump's first use of secrecy powers as president, and it came as the House Judiciary Committee recommended the House of Representatives hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt for defying a subpoena. Calling it a cover-up, House Chair Jerry Nadler said his committee would, quote, be taking a hard look at the individuals who are enabling what he called a lawless and reckless administration. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said in a response, faced with Chairman Nadler's blatant abuse of power and at the Attorney General's request, the president has no other option than to make a protective assertion of executive privilege. Trump again claimed Chinese negotiators were attempting to drag out negotiations until, quote, a very weak Democrat was back in the White House. 
quote, the reason for the China pullback and attempted renegotiation of the trade deal is sincere hope that they will be able to negotiate with Joe Biden or one of the very weak Democrats and thereby continue to rip off the United States for $500 billion a year for years to come. Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, signed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation, effectively banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. The so-called fetal heartbeat law is expected to lead to a swift legal challenge. However, abortion opponents believe the Supreme Court is ready to overturn 1973's Roe v. Wade decision. Day 840, May 9th. Attorney General William Barr was held in contempt of Congress following a 24-16 vote by the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee. Barr is accused of lying to Congress about the contents of the Mueller report. Trump asserted executive privilege over the report in an attempt to shield it from public view. Mueller detailed at least 10 instances where Trump obstructed justice and hundreds of detailed contacts with Russia. Committee Chair Jerry Nadler said, quote, we are now in a constitutional crisis. Privately, Democrats are now saying Trump is giving them no choice but to push through impeachment proceedings. In a related matter, Trump's son Donald Jr. was surprisingly subpoenaed to the Senate to explain his previous testimony. That caught Republicans unaware. Trump Jr. testified before the committee in 2017 he was only peripherally aware of a planned Trump Tower in Moscow. However, Michael Cohen told a House committee earlier this year he had met with both Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump approximately 10 times to brief them on that Trump Tower plan. New York State has passed a bill that would allow Trump's state tax returns to be turned over to congressional committees. The bill would permit the State Department of Taxation and the Finance Commissioner to release any state tax return requested by the leaders of the House Ways and Means Committee, Senate Finance Committee, or the Joint Committee on Taxation for any specific and legitimate legislative purpose. Governor Andrew Cuomo has said he will sign that bill. And Trump laughed at a suggestion that migrants turning to our border should be shot. Speaking at a rally in the Florida Panhandle, an audience member suggested that immigrants seeking asylum on our southern border should be gunned down. Trump laughed at the remark and complained that border security people are prohibited from shooting migrants approaching the border while other countries can do that. Just 30% of Americans think that William Barr did the right thing in releasing his statement on the Mueller report. Trump is alleged to have lost $1.17 billion, making him by far the biggest money loser in America during this time period. Trump's approval rating remains very low at 37%. These are the Trump Diaries. Sebastian and Adrian again. Welcome back to Keeper's Box. I'm Adrian. And I'm Sebastian. So today we're going to take over five minutes by listening to Sebastian cry. Oh man, profusely. It's been a tough season for him. Uh, it's been a tough season for me too, but I didn't have a glimmer of hope like he did. <laughs> so he Yeah, had... I don't know. Do you, would you rather have hope or would you rather just not have it at all? Because I had hope, and then it just got crushed. No, 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 no. It, it just uh, got snatched I away. had hope at the very beginning of the season, and then my teams, probably in about <laughs> two months into it, decided to crush all my hopes. Yeah. So I realized early in the season that it was not going to go well for me, and it definitely hasn't. But for you, you were right there. You were at the, you were at the, the peak. Yeah. And uh, it's been slapped out of your hand by somebody who normally doesn't do that. Uh, okay, so if... <laughs> Liverpool, all right? Liverpool. <laughs> Liverpool, yes. <laughs> That's uh, what it comes down to, is Liverpool. Yeah, the reason I, I say it was slapped out of your hand was because Vincent Company, who normally doesn't... Of all people. ...pull off a 30-yard goal. Of all know. people to to win the league. Mm-hmm. Vincent Company, who, has, who hasn't scored at all yeah. this season, and who... Like, who had a yellow. Is, is con- yeah, it probably should have been a red, but I don't it know. It should have been a red. I didn't see it. Um, yeah, this, this one guy who's, like, constantly hurt, too, just comes off and... Does what does what needed to be done. Yeah, and good for them. Man City, you know they've been they've been a great team, obviously since last season, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if they if they go to win, they deserve it. They they've earned it. So it just sucks being a Liverpool fan right now. <laughs> it's kind of the worst. It's the worst week. Yeah. Really. Tell, me, tell me how you feel about champions. Uh, well, uh, that's <laughs> even two hundred players who can't play in the next game. You know, I I feel champions. I don't, yeah, of course they don't have. We can all say they don't have a chance. That being said, because they don't have a chance, I think Klopp needs to go all out and not be cautious and just play the way he used to play last season, where they didn't have much of a choice except to go all out. 
mm-hmm. you know? You might as well. You're going to be at home. At least give the supporters something to be proud of in that last game. Yeah, but it's against Barcelona. That could end up oh, for sure. completely yeah. going yeah. against you, working uh, against you. Yeah, but I mean, what else you got to lose? You either do that or you're out. You're out either way. I mean, so you're, looking, you're looking at the the kings of the, the, the counter, you know, with sure. Messi and Suarez. Yeah, but, you know, you still got to go all out. I mean... Yeah, they were last season. Liverpool was getting countered left and right, also because they had no defense. Yeah, but and they played such a high line uh, because of the Gegen pressing. So I don't see why you don't just go all out, anyways. I mean, you're already down three to nothing. Go all out, man. You might yeah. as well go out in a blaze of glory, man. Yeah, but the defense still has to because you can't allow Barcelona to score one. No, if they score one, then you would have to score what five, six. Sure. I, I mean, at that point, it just becomes an impossibility. But you also have to score as quickly as possible. So yeah. you're kind of in a you know rock and a hard place in between. Because yeah. what are you gonna do? You know. Yeah. As far as Premier League, all you can do is keep winning and <laughs> win what's your last though, game and see what happens. That's what's crazy though, because if you look at EPL, let's just look, concentrate on EPL for right now. Liverpool at one point had, I believe, a seven-point lead on yeah. City, and City clawed their way back. And it wasn't like Liverpool just, as they called it, you know, bottled it up or, or you know, sure, messed no, it up. No. Liverpool kept winning, kept drawing. They didn't Keep really drawing. lose games. They've only lost one They've game. They've only lost one game. They've lost yeah. one game and still may not win the league. That's, That's how right. competitive the They might get 97 points been. and still yeah. not win. Yeah. So it's been a crazy season, and it's a testament yeah. to what Manchester City is as, sure. as as a team, as a club, as management, uh, what Pep Guardiola has been able to pull oh, off. Pep is amazing. Uh, how he's been able to put all his players. They've gone through injuries, and they were still able to pull off Absolutely. something like this. Yeah. Uh, granted, they you know they they went down to uh, Tottenham in 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 Champions League, and even then it was just a super tight game. And it it, and it, it was kind of down. Kinda, yeah. It came down to VAR. To it VAR. came down to a replay. It was very controversial. Yeah. And so, uh, which, yeah. Very difficult. But but let's let's give credit where credit is due. Tottenham gave him a great game too, yeah. so yeah, it, yeah, yeah, you never know. That's, ah, I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you're hurt, man. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really hurting right now, open the inside. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, that's what that's what this this sport does. It 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 lifts you up and drops you down further than you were lifted up. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah. it feels like. Get used to it. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something. It, it, if if it has been an amazing season at the top and at the bottom of the league. Uh, the champions uh, underneath has has also been a really good season. Yeah, uh, that's all still happening right now. It, it's just something that it's it's unexplainable. I mean, you're looking at two teams with ninety plus points, and the one team it's with almost a hundred points is not going to yeah. take the championship, yeah. the, the league, from what it looks like. So it's yeah. it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, there's still a couple of games left, so we'll see if miracles happen or if they don't. I, they so. can, but. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. This has been Keeper Box. The Keeper's Box with Sebastian and Adrian Aguirre. Audio highlights courtesy of NBC, Fox, ESPN, Turner, Sky, and the BBC. All rights reserved by their rights holders and used under fair news access. This is a production of Lumpin' Radio. Hard-rocking Brit poppers Space Bones pulled into Studio A for a John Daly session. Recorded by Ari Shellist, this is Monsoon. the same.
and the communists. Feel it out, feel it out, you gotta feel it out, feel it out, feel it out, you gotta feel it out, feel it out, feel it out, you gotta feel it out, feel it out. And if you wanna, you can change. Hey, 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 Tell me stories of the things I've missed How are Ava, Henry, Michael, and Benjamin How big is Connor? I am honored to remember If news is all the same and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>